Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 44, where we're traveling back to 1986 and the 40th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, George Pearl, for his Wind Quintet 4. Now, Dave, you're a music theorist, so I know you have lots of experiences with George Pearl. I do. I was just thinking, looking back at our list, I think George Pearl is the, only the second winner of the Pulitzer Prize who's also known as a theorist, the other being Walter Piston. Of course. So... In this case, yes, we have lots of experience with Pearl because if you're doing any graduate work in music theory, you learn about uh, not only his expertise with second Viennese composers, especially Alban Berg and Schoenberg, Webern, uh, but also his whole 12-tone tonality idea, yes. and his, which was a compositional technique for him, but also he was very much uh, working off of what Schoenberg's perspective mm-hmm. was on 12-tone theory and uh, pretty creative, actually, I'd say, creative way to come up with a compositional system that is that blends elements of tonality with atonality. So, yeah, we, we studied his work a lot uh, as a theorist, but as I say, as a, you know, as a composer, I don't think I knew anything about him. I, I knew, knew nothing of his okay, music. Okay. Absolutely nothing. You, no, knew, I, you knew he was a composer. I knew he was a composer, but it was one of those things that's like, he's a theorist who also composes, is yes. how I classified him in my head. Yeah. And then we started doing this research, and that's not how he thought about himself at all. No. He no. thought of himself as a composer who happened to do theory. Mm-hmm. But I've heard none of his music until I sat down to prepare for this <laughs> podcast. And, and I can still say to this day, Wind Quintet number four is the only piece by George Pearl I've ever listened to. <laughs> you didn't listen to the other Wind Quintets uh, on the single album? I did not. No, the uh, the Dorian, as we're going to talk about, the Dorian Wind Quintet were big fans of George Pearl's mm-hmm. uh, Woodwind Quintets, and they commissioned our piece today. But uh, no, I did not uh, take the plunge into the rest of them. But I don't know. It, we, maybe we'll uh, by the end of this episode, we'll uh, be inspired to do so. And why don't we start by talking about George Pearl? Telling the story. Okay, so I have this great quote (laughs) that I put first that I wanted to give you. Yes, I see that. Um, Because this is how I knew George Pearl, was all of his work on Alban Baird. Yep. On the lyric suite, on reconstructing Lulu, those were the things I knew. And so um, Elliot and Tokoletz, who studied with him, gave this description, and he said this was the best description that he'd ever seen of George Pearl. Um, he said that the quote comes from his daughter when she was just a young child, and she says to her dad, to George Pearl, let's play house. You'll be the daddy, and I'll be the mommy, and you'll talk to me about Lulu. <laughs> right? That, 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 <laughs> I mean, that, that's great. Very perceptive for a young child. Very too, perceptive uh, for a young child. Just say that to You'll talk to me about Lulu. <laughs> there you go. That's right. I mean, he wrote a book on uh, the, uh, the operas of Berg. He did, and just and I think I actually forgot to mention. Yeah, not only that, he's the one who kind of discovered the the secret 
the secret program program mm-hmm. of the lyric suite, which was uh, based had a motive based on the combined Alban Berg's name with his mistress's name. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I'm sure his daughter was. Uh, well, the way he analyzes Wozzeck is the way I teach it today. So, I yeah, mean, it's very important in terms of being a scholar. He is one of the preeminent scholars of that second Viennese school music, and especially Alban Berg. I mean, it's just kind of. Um, insane how influential he's been. It's probably why, at least in terms of our academic circles, he's overshadowed his composition through his theoretical work. Yeah. And, and, you know, thinking about it, do you feel the same way about Piston? Would that be the same thing? Or is just Piston sadly forgotten? Piston's just forgotten. Forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't use, I didn't read Piston in graduate school. I listened to some of his music, but that's just because I was an Americanist. Right. And so when we were talking about American music, he was one that we talked about, like, oh, yeah, listen to a little bit of Piston. But even that was just kind of like, and he was another Boulanger protege. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just lumped in there. So I think more than Pearl, Piston is just kind of not yeah. talked about. I know. It's it's very strange how the reception of people has, uh, the path that it's taken. Well, Pearl's interesting for a lot of reasons. That's a huge one, of course. But he is not. He later became part of the East Coast Mafia, but mm-hmm. he wasn't. Didn't start out that way, and was very much a Chicagoan, which I right. think I find interesting. So born in New Jersey, but went to DePaul, got a bachelor's degree from DePaul University, and then masters in music from the American Conservatory of Music, which was in Chicago, doesn't exist anymore. And then went off to war and right. fought in World War II for three years in Europe and the Pacific. Then went to the University of Louisville, also not a, a you know bastion of. Right. I mean, now now it's kind of famous because of the Graumeyer mm-hmm. Award, but back then that wasn't happening. And then eventually worked his way east and got to Queens College and CUNY. So then eventually got into the whole East Coast. That's professor. also why he wins a Pulitzer so late in his life. Yeah. So I, while we were just uh, had a little pause here, uh, I was he was seventy one years old, and so this reminds me of someone else who won not that long ago. In there Roger seems Sessions. to be yeah right a, a kind of nineteen eighties. Let's award these people we haven't awarded yet. Yeah. It's their turn, right? I mean, we can, we're seeing this continually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also interesting that George Pearl comes at this point in time because we've had just a string of those neo-romantic winners. Yeah. And this is a hard <laughs> shift away from that school. Definitely, definitely. So a very different upbringing, different training, and different stage of life. Yeah, because our last, uh, Stephen Albert won mm-hmm. just last time, and he was born in 41, and so he was only... what. Uh, just in his 40s. In his 40s, 41, yeah. yeah. So quite a big difference here. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe it's time to go Behind the Notes with this piece. Behind the Notes. All right, so lay it on us. Tell us about 12-tone tonality. <laughs> Ooh, it's a complicated topic. Uh, essentially, the idea is that you you're trying to find a way to center 12-tone music so that it uh, resembles tonality in some way. And it's taking taking a dyad often, so two pitches, and making them kind of an ostinato or some sort of motive that underlies the piece. So because there's some kind of grounding. Some kind of grounding, yeah, exactly, uh, which is compared to Schoenberg where the idea was to get away from any 
repetitive mm-hmm. uh, pitch classes. So in this way, it, it, it's not making a tonic in the same way, but it's at least giving, like you said, some grounding. Well, and that's the interesting thing to me about the whole idea of 12-tone tonality is it says, I still want to be atonal, but I want your ear to have something to hang on to because so many of those... Uh, Schoenberg, especially the early kind of 12-tone experiments, you're just lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are motives you can kind of follow if you have the score in front of you, but for your ears to latch onto it, uh, this piece, the Wind Quintet 4, has lots of motives for your ears to kind of latch onto and follow through, even though there is no such thing as a tonal center. No, not at all. In fact, doesn't one of our musical examples is has the motives in it, doesn't it? Yeah, I thought we would just start. So the, the work is in four movements. Uh, you have an invention, a scherzo, a pastoral, and a finale. Mm-hmm. Now, the pastoral is the biggest movement. It's chunky. It's about five, almost six minutes long of the about 18-minute piece, so about a third of it. But I thought we would start by just listening to the beginning of the invention because this opening statement is going to be one of the motives that is just going to carry through the entire piece. So I thought we'd listen to the opening of the first movement, but then let's listen to the first of the fourth movement, and you'll hear they start the same way, giving you that kind of sense of... Um, something to hang on to for your ears. So da 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 da. Yeah. And there comes back the beginning of that fourth movement. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And that first movement is nothing but that da 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 little motive. It is everywhere. I think I read that it was it's played fifteen times or something just within the first couple minutes. Yeah, it's just two minutes, about two minutes yeah. long. That first yeah. movement, it's nothing. No, no, it's so very motivic, and that's that's Schoenbergian to that's take. Schoenbergian. Yeah, to take that along with it. Well, and to write it as an invention. As it yes, so the forms that you listed, the invention, scherzo, pastoral, and finale are all classical mm-hmm. or baroque forms. So. That's already hearkening back uh, to the past. And well, that was one of the criticisms of Schoenberg. Yes. Oh, Schoenberg is Advanced musical language, <laughs> old musical forms. Yep. Now he's using advanced musical language and old musical forms just like Schoenberg. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the choice of writing a woodwind quintet also has another parallel because the only other woodwind, well, first of all, woodwind, woodwind quintets, I still believe are the hardest pieces mm-hmm. to write because they're, Five totally different timbres. And, and trying to make any kind of blend is yeah, really difficult. It's really hard. And as a former horn player, horn's the problem in there <laughs> because we can blow over everybody else. Isn't horn always the problem, is Dave? It, <laughs> horn is a problem <laughs> instrument, I, I do have to say. <laughs> it can ruin a performance. Um, but it, it's, it's very hard to balance. Mm. It's just hard to, even in this recording, the the recording of it, which was by the Dorian Wind Quintet, I heard some uh, distortion just from the horn coming in very loudly on the recording. Uh, but the only other piece I can think of that's even related is the Schoenberg Wind Quintet, mm-hmm. Opus 26, which is a tough piece in a lot of ways. Uh, theorists love it because it's fun to analyze, but very hard to listen to in a lot of ways, and it's extremely difficult. Uh, but so I find this a lot clearer. Uh, the, something that really strikes me about this piece is its clarity, and it's very clean to hear what's happening. Yeah, in the it's lines. very open. Open. Yeah. It's one of those yeah. things that I was listening to it, and you know, you're just talking about blend. 
I don't think he was trying to blend the instruments. They are very unique and mm-hmm. very distinct. And you hear, ah, there's the clarinet. And there's the, I mean, you hear each of these instruments and their musical lines. And it's not like they're trying to create this kind of homogenous sound. He wants them to be distinct. Yes, very much so. Whereas the Schoenberg is extremely dense mm-hmm. and hard to tell what's going on. And uh, so I've, this is also, I wouldn't say it's neoclassical or neo-baroque, but it certainly has a clarity of line that makes it stand out. And it's also, I don't know if it's just the the 12-tone tonality about it. It also doesn't sound as, uh, I don't know what the word is. Not I mean, it's dissonant, obviously. but It's, it's dissonant, but it's, it's not, not harsh. harsh. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. It's not harsh at all. No, no. it's very, it's... I mean, if you could have easy listening for 12-tone <laughs> music, this is easy listening for 12-tone it music. Is. This is adult contemporary 12-tone. I mean, I, it was really surprising when I sat down to listen because I knew the 12-tone tonality. I knew his history of Schoenberg yeah. and Berg, and I sat down to listen, and it doesn't sound like them at all. No, yeah. no, not at all. So that that's, makes me think about his training or mm-hmm. some of the people he studied with. He's also studied with Ernst Krennic, right. who wrote a book, 12-tone counterpoint. And so maybe that has something to do with it too because because Krennic was not uh, you know, sycophant of Schoenberg either, yeah. just following the path. So, well, there's also the, also these moments. So, I wanted to play a little bit of the scherzo also because there are moments that are just fun, and I don't think about Schoenberg being fun, no. right? But these moments, no. they're just you, you kind of smile as you listen to them. So, this is just about halfway through the scherzo, so the second movement. So, you're just about four minutes into the piece at this point. So, let me listen to this. Well, you have a quote here that the the arrhythmic contrapuntal texture of the scherzo is forever interrupted by the rabble-rousing horn. Well, that's exactly... Is, yeah. I mean, it comes in, it has a little little bite to it, the yep. way that it's interpreted here, the Dorian. Yeah. And it's just funny. I it's mean, the, fun. The tempo pulls back a little bit, and mm-hmm. then it speeds up again, and the instruments are kind of bouncing back and forth. I mean, that uh, that movement, I think, is the most successful one. Yeah, it reminds me of Poulenc, kind mm-hmm. of, in that kind of playful back and forth with yeah. some horn rips rip, 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 kind of things in there to, yeah. that are, are humorous. So uh, as you mentioned, the, the invention is very brief and then the scherzo is about five minutes. The, the pastoral, as you said, is kind of where the, it's where the meat is. The meat is, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I noticed about it, it's very homophonic. It's, mm-hmm. The other movements are pretty contrapuntal. This seemed very kind of chorale-like in a lot of ways. So It also is the most boring. I, yeah, that, I think for that reason, it, to me, it just got a little dull. Yeah, it really kind of sags. sags. You get, and it's you're thinking, uh, looking at the timings, I always look at the timings to see, and it, it's interesting that you would put the most time in the third movement, Yeah, just yeah. kind of strange to begin with. But I got there, and it just kind of drug yeah. <laughs> until you got to the finale, and that da 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 came back and, and shot you off again. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely flagged. I I remember first time I heard, I said, "What movement is this? Still the sec, the third movement? This is still the third, is movement. Still the third okay. movement." Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, very. Uh, uh, I mean, for a twelve tone piece, you can you're not going to hear the rows. You're not going to figure out it's R I six or something. But you're, I think there's such a clarity in the form, which uses ternary and uh, classical type forms, mm-hmm. and you know, the lines are so clear that. It's pretty engaging to figure out and follow what's going on. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, should we see what other people thought about Wind Quintet number four? 
Hit or miss? All right, so let's go to our friends on the jury here. So who's the jury this year? Well, yes. So this was this piece was performed on an all George Pearl concert conducted by Gunther Schuler. So we've we're back to Gunther Schuler. Back to Gunther Schuler. We're seeing some of the same familiar names. Yes, we are. So this was performed at the uh, Hebrew Art School in New York on Wednesday, October 2nd, 1985. So they played a whole concert of Pearl's music. This was the second piece on the program. And so the jury says, it's a very brief jury report, unlike some of our recent ones. Hmm. It just says, unanimous in recommending be given to George Pearl's quintet. The work is characterized by an elegant individuality of craft. Hmm. In four contrasting movements, Pearl reveals an engaging delicacy of nuance and clarity of form. So kind of like what we said. Yeah. But that's it. And then the second choice of the committee is George Rockberg's Symphony Number no. 5. And then they have a little sentence on that. So let's see if this committee tracks with Pearl. Chair Leon Kirchner. Oh. Ah. There, now we're beginning <laughs> now, to see why yes. someone like Pearl could win. And in perhaps the biggest surprise here, we're going to go old school with this winner, William Schumann. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're back to the beginning the of the be- Pulitzer. I know. Interesting. I know. And then Martin Bernheimer, who we've heard of before, music critic from the LA Times. So, yeah, so our two composers were Kirchner and Schumann. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to me that we're now getting to know this, the, the runners-up. Yes. Right? Remember, in the 1980s, this is a new thing. And to me, the, the juxtaposition of Pearl and Rockberg is fascinating because Rockberg is famously known for rejecting serialism, yeah. turning his back on it and saying, it's unemotional, I can't do what I want with it, and moving into this kind of... Um, I mean, he's neo-romantic in a way, but he juxtaposes a lot of times kind of um, tense, dissonant, atonality with really lush kind of consonant moments. And that's what he does here in the Fifth Symphony. So it's fascinating that they could have continued the string of neo-romantic emotional pieces and instead they went with this very uh, intellectual piece. Mm -hmm. But now that we know that it's Kirchner, that says a lot. That says a lot. And also another connection is those two uh, composers, Rockberg and uh, uh, Pearl, uh, are not traditionalists with 12-tone either. Right, I mean, they not. both had their own way, so they, they're working their way through and grappling with serialism, and it is kind of interesting that you'd have that juxtaposition. The other thing that's fascinating to me about this is that at this point, usually we would say, and here's all the reviews of it, mm-hmm. um, there's almost nothing out there. No, no. Almost nothing. It's like a black hole. Like This happened, I guess, because it was a George Pearl concert. They didn't think that they should go and review it, if, even though it had a premiere. And so it's really fascinating that this winner seems to have just kind of vanished in yeah. terms of the press at the time. The best we can find is in obituaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember the New York Times one talks about this piece a little bit, but no reviews. But I think or, they talk about it because it won, it won the Pulitzer. The, exactly. And how many people have we heard say, oh, now I'll, my obit will say, I'll, I'll get a New York Times obit because I won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely true. Yeah. But it did help propel him in many ways because the very next year uh, is when he was nominated for a MacArthur Genius Award. Mm. So you begin to see that this award 
did have an impact on his reception, at least as a composer here um, towards the end of his life, people began to say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we, we recognize that Pearl is a composer and we'll give him some, <laughs> give him some love here. Is this, is this similar to Roger Sessions? I think it's very similar to Roger Sessions. Yeah, I think yeah. so, definitely. Well, since we don't have much to say, we'll just wrap it up with our own thoughts on this. So, right. all right, well, uh, <laughs> hit or miss. So this is a hard one for me because I enjoyed it more than I expected. I will say that I had preconceptions coming in. I thought, <laughs> oh, we've got to get through. I mean, I think we saw each other yeah. last week and said, oh, have you listened to Pearl yet? We try not to talk about these before. But yeah, yeah. There was that kind of sense. And I enjoyed it more than I expected. That scherzo, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that scherzo. As a whole, though, I don't think I want to hear it again. <laughs> so it's like this very narrow miss for me. Ooh. What about for you? Uh, I'm going to go the opposite and say it's a narrow hit. Okay. Because, first of all, I think it's refreshing to hear a non-orchestral work. We've been inundated with these big, mm-hmm. huge orchestral pieces for the last, for quite a while now, uh, in a row, these neo-romantic pieces. So to have kind of a terse woodwind quintet, I found refreshing. I do love that this is the first all-winds yeah. piece that we've had win. That's true, too. And I think that's too. really remarkable that it took... 40 years for a piece just for woodwinds to win. Yeah. Um, so I do, I agree. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, uh, and does it, like I've said many times on the podcast, the criteria for me is do these pieces make me want to hear more of their works? And I would say a qualified, yes, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing. So I might listen to the rest of the disc. Yeah. I might listen to a couple more of the uh, woodwind quintets mm-hmm. just because they're interesting. So, uh, so I'd give it a qualified hit. So. <laughs> so we're really gung ho about Pearl today. <laughs> about Qualify everything, but yeah. I think it does show that um, preconceptions do have a, a an impact on what we expect when we go into a work. And because we have a history with George Pearl, because of the theoretical work, I think there was a certain expectation that I think he surprised us. Yeah, definitely. We were probably both expecting a very dry. Dense. Yeah, difficult. there's a lot more wit. Yeah, and a lot more playfulness in this piece than I ever would have expected. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, HearingThePulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about George Pearl. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. Finally, join us next episode where we discuss the first cantata to win since the very first award by the aforementioned William Schumann back in 1943. This time to John Harbison for The Flight into Egypt. Until then, keep listening. (laughs) 